Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Depends where you're watching. Welcome to the Monday edition of 7 Investing Now. My name, of course, is Daniel Brooks Klein. I'm the host of the program. I'm being joined today by Steve Symington, uh, who just told me that it is in the 50s in Montana. <laughs> I, won't, I won't be visiting you, Steve, until May or June. That, that, is, that is all I could say on that. So here's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're doing a bit of a news grab bag. We're going to touch on the movie industry. We're going to talk about Virgin Orbit. That is the spin-off company from Virgin Galactic, not the chewing gum company. That's just Orbit. Uh, and we are going to talk fast food wages. Later in the show, we're going to talk about your investing mistakes. Because it's kind of an open show, we would just love your questions and comments. Whatever you want to ask us about can be what we're talking about, can be other things. Say hello. Tell us what's going on. We would love to hear from you. Uh, but let's hit it right now running. Okay, so first topic here is Disney's Free Guy. This is a movie they inherited when they bought uh, 20th Century Fox. Has made $112 million in box office, and it only dropped by 34% domestically week over week. That's actually really good. Uh, is this non-franchise, non-sequel film a sign that the movie business is back? It's back, baby. Steve, is that true? <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't say back, back, but this is, yeah, I think the, the one advantage that this one has is that it was a, a, a theater-only release, right? It wasn't one that uh, Disney decided to, you know, dual release like they did with Black Widow, which saw a really, really steep plunge in its second weekend. And, and I don't know if that's just a, uh, a sign of its staying power because, you know, 34% uh, drop is not bad. Actually, you know, when when you when you look at that, like yeah, often no, you see them 50, six, 60. six, yeah, 60% is actually common for a block. Yeah. And I mean, 50 is like, all right, that's not bad. And, you know, when you're getting mid 60s and 70s, that's when they're like, this might not have legs at the box office. And um, so, you know, that that's a sign that this could have some staying power or it could be a sign that maybe it's the only thing anyone wanted to see. And they did do a, a really decent job marketing this one. And even my kids are like, can we go see safe, you know, see a free guy? I'm like, yeah, like I really want to go see it. I haven't seen it yet, but um, we'll be one of those people who who picks it up in the following days. And and uh, yeah, I'm excited about that. And, and uh, maybe the state of the movie industry overall. So I'm, I'm going to argue the opposite direction. One, the drop is good. And usually when a movie has good word of mouth, it will mm -hmm. do well in weeks after. And this movie has good word of mouth. I didn't check the Rotten Tomatoes, but, it, but it's, it's a good rating. The problem is $112 million globally is a terrible number for a blockbuster. <laughs> so when we look at where Black Widow is now, Black mm -hmm. Widow between the Disney Plus money, and remember, Disney keeps all of that money on Disney Plus. So I forget the number. Let's say it's $150 million directly on Disney Plus. They yeah. keep almost all of that, whereas the theatrical release, it's somewhere between 70% uh, goes to Disney towards the beginning, and that number goes down. So that movie is at about $500 billion, but it's yeah. probably the equivalent of like 550, 560 when you look at the different uh, strategy. That movie will probably get to the equivalent of like in the mid 600s. That's very respectable for a kind mm -hmm. of second tier Marvel release. Yeah. Free Guy is going to struggle to get to 250 million. It doesn't yeah. make money at 250 million. With, with, uh, we don't know what that movie cost, but between the advertising, between the this is going to be a movie that's going to take years to make money, which isn't tip, which is typical. A lot yeah. of these like secondary, but like this is being heralded as people going to the movies. These are not big numbers. They almost certainly cost themselves money by not releasing it on Disney Plus same time. Mm -hmm. um, but is it possible, Steve, maybe with smaller budgets 
uh, like we used to saw the first Knives Out movie was a relatively small budget movie, opened yeah. small and stayed in theaters for like 25 weeks and sort of legged out a bunch of money. Is mm-hmm. it possible that that well-reviewed movies at a certain budget might make sense as theatrical only releases? Uh, that that might make sense. Um you know, just to just to stay back that way. And, you know, it, I wouldn't expect it to be able to uh, a movie like this, I don't think is expected to perform as well as, you know, even Black Widow as like a second tier Marvel Marvel movie, rather, um, because it just doesn't have uh, kind of the, 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 you know, 22 plus film story building uh, to its advantage or, or the big Marvel name. But, um, you know, I, I, I think this, uh, I, I think this might just might well prove to have legs in the theaters and then they can, you know, throw it on Disney plus later and use that as a retention tool there. Uh, you know, it's not something where, you know, we'll have 125 million alone from Disney plus in premier access because it's just not doing that. But I think they kind of understand well, uh, what they're trying to accomplish with this. And, and, uh, yeah, I was poking around. I can't quite see, um, you know, usually they'll give you uh, at least a like marketing production budget, and uh, generally, kind of rule of thumb used to be that uh, you know if you doubled your gross box office receipts uh, of your um, production budget, then uh, you were pretty happy with that, and uh, anything else was kind of gravy on top of that at the, the, yeah, that, the theaters that, anyway. That's always been a a kind of faulty number because that's a number yeah. that like makes you break even if you do well in like. Yeah some things that don't exist anymore, like your HBO window and your free TV window and TV <laughs> sales and all those other things. There's no way free guy costs less than 250 million to make and market. So for that to make money, it needs to be well above where it is. It's a yeah. success for the times we're in. It won't be a big money loser. It's yeah. well regarded. So it, it might you know be a franchise potential and the type of things that can build. And then the second one, it gets to new sales of the first one. That's absolutely mm-hmm. possible. Uh, I wanted to point this out only, and we'd love your questions and comments. I wanted to point this out only because, dear God, don't go out and buy shares of like movie theater companies because of this. <laughs> don't don't double down on, on on popcorn. Like the movie business as we know it is dead, and I think it's really important to say that that there are going to be theatrical blockbusters. There are going to be films like Black Widow where you could watch it at home, but you want to see it in a theater. But Steve. Yeah, you have a few kids. Once you get to thirty dollars on Disney Plus, that's cheaper than going to the theater, right? For for your family, if everyone goes, it is. And um, but you know, for for certain titles, I I'd prefer to to sit in a theater and experience that, you know, and and to like see my six year old walk in and be like, whoa, look up, you know, even though he's been to movies before, but every single time, it's like, you know, there there is something to be said for that experience versus paying thirty bucks to watch a movie at home that I could wait for. Um, but we've done it a couple of times, you know, with premier access movies and we're sitting there on a rainy day and we just don't feel like going out. You know, it kind of makes sense for us sometimes, but, uh, you know, I I think there's a place for the movie business, but maybe not an investable place. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I I, I, I fully agree. I think there's going to remain movie theaters though. We have way too many screens and there's going to be events. There's going to be, uh, you know, boxing and wrestling pay-per-views. There's going to be concerts. There's going to be things like, I live in Florida, which is, has a lot of uh, expat New Yorkers and Bostonians. So there might be like Red Sox Yankee games, like, you know, shown at theaters. But you also have to change that infrastructure. My son and I have talked yeah. about going uh, to the, the September 5th uh, AEW All Out show and watching it, uh, which is a pro wrestling group, and watching it in a theater. The problem is that theater still has theater snacks and theater food. It doesn't really have the equivalent 
of like watching, you know, a UFC fight in like a Buffalo Wild Wings where like the yeah. food is, I mean, the food is good by Buffalo Wild Wings standards, <laughs> but certainly it's better than like a movie theater hot dog. So yeah. like there, there's a lot that needs to be done, like, you know, in order to make that happen. So I do think there will be a place for theaters, but not an investable place. We've got a lot to cover here. We're going we're gonna to do three topics at the top of the show here. The next one we're going to talk about is Virgin Orbit. I, I sort of approach this from the angle that Boeing is part of the investment group in this. But yeah. I think, Steve, let's set the stage. What is Boeing Orbit? Uh, what, what is Boeing Orbit? What is Virgin Orbit? Uh, and sort of what does the SPAC look like? Give us a little bit of an overview here. Yeah. So, um, you know, th this one's definitely piqued my interest. And, and for those of you who've watched the live stream before, you might recall we actually talked about uh, the potential Virgin Orbit SPAC back in April when news first kind of broke that they were considered they were in talks uh, with a spec merger vehicle called next gen acquisition corp Two. it trades under the ticker NGCA. And uh, today we have that news is confirmed. So uh, Virgin Orbit will be going public via SPEC. Uh, SPECs is an acronym for Special Purpose Acquisition Vehicle or Special Purpose Acquisition Company. And uh, we've done a couple podcasts on SPECs specifically, say that 10 times fast, and um, to help you kind of better understand the whole purpose of them. But it's basically a, an alternate way to go public relative to uh, traditional IPO. So essentially, uh, these are blank check companies that have been formed with the sole purpose of finding a company to merge with to, to bring a previously privately held company public. And uh, it's kind of a, a lower cost way that you don't have to go through a lot of the hoops that you need to with traditional IPOs. So uh, Virgin Orbit will be merging with NextGen Acquisition Corp 2, trades under the ticker NGCA, and eventually will have its own ticker once the merger is complete. But we don't have a, a timeline yet. But uh, right now, it's going to value Virgin Orbit at about $3.2 billion. It will include a, uh, a pipe as well, which is a, a private investment in public equity. That's another acronym that goes with SPACs. And part of that pipe, um, they've dedicated, uh, they've already collected 100 million in dedicated pipe investments, including investments from Boeing. Uh, and that's no coincidence because um, Virgin Orbit is, they, they take kind of a different approach to um, launching. Now, if you're not familiar with what they do, uh, they focus on um, launch solutions for small satellites and light payloads to get things into orbit, right? It used to be prohibitively expensive to do something like that. Uh, but Virgin Orbit can launch um, satellites and other small payloads up to 500 kilograms into orbit for anybody. And um, rather than using an upright rocket model, like uh, some of the other competitors do, Virgin Orbit uh, does it in a similar fashion to Virgin Galactic in that it attaches a rocket launcher to the bottom of a modified Boeing 747. There's the connection with Boeing. It Boeing 747 takes it to about 45,000 feet, drops the rocket, rocket then launches to space from there. Uh, and it's important to keep in mind, this isn't the same company as Virgin Galactic. It is a sister company. Uh, Virgin Orbit was actually a spinoff from Virgin Galactic back in 2017. So not the same company. They are kind of affiliated. They use similar technologies and they believe it's a more efficient way to launch payloads into space. So uh, definitely an interesting, interesting space, pun intended. But uh, yeah, so, so, so let, let's, let's set the table a little bit here. You've got Virgin Galactic on one side that's doing space tourism yep. and eventually let's call it super fast, uh, not interstellar travel, uh, you know, New York to Australia in, in 45 minutes or whatever it's going to be. Yeah. So that's the travelism and tourism part. This is launching payloads into space, which is a more competitive area, but it's also a more monetizable area 
So yeah. this is a company that has a little bit more in the way of actual finances, right, Steve? Yeah, it's a little bit farther ahead in terms of, of actual revenue generation. I, you know, I think last uh, last quarter we saw Virgin Galactic generate like it was like seven hundred eighty one million in in or a thousand in in revenue from like a single flight that carried a NASA payload. But uh, they haven't started collecting actual being able to recognize actual revenue from paying customers yet. Virgin Orbit expects about fifteen million in revenue this year, uh, and they're targeting revenue of about 2.6 billion by 2026. Now, take that with a grain of salt. Um, <laughs> so, they, they, so, they, so, so am I. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, my personal so, target as well. <laughs> yeah. They, and, you know, they're, they're basically saying, you know, we hope to be uh, positive on an EBITDA basis. It's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. Uh, by 2024 is what they're looking for to be basically profitable uh, on an EBITDA basis by then. Um, they, they, um, you know, a couple hundred million in, uh, in actual contracts already. And they say that they're pursuing, um, opportunities worth about 2.3 billion. So it depends on how much of that they can actually secure. Uh, it is a competitive space, but, uh, as far as, uh, the, and there's kind of a lower ask, uh, when when it comes to you know not putting and not having to obviously they're going to do things you know as safely as possible um but it's a little bit different um dynamic when you're dropping uh payloads uh, you know small payloads in, uh, into orbit and when you're dropping people uh yeah <laughs> into, it, it, into if space things don't to, go well with the payload you don't have to tell the payload's wife that it's not coming home like that's that's really yeah. really important here but these two companies yeah. It's important to note are tied together on a technology basis. They're using the same yeah. rocket ship technology, more or less. And look, I think if you own one, you probably need to own the other. And I think it's also fair to say that there are a lot of SPACs out there that are very speculative, that we know nothing about the business. And that's yeah. not really true here. That look, a lot of things could go wrong, but arguably, this is a more mature company where some of the de risking events have already happened. Uh, we know they can make yeah. these launches. Uh, so that's absolutely something. Steve, yeah. anything else you want to add on Virgin Orbit before we move on to fast food wages? Yeah. And I guess to that end, um, yeah. You actually shown. You should be good. Uh, did, you, did I lose you there for a minute? I am having some technical issues ah. with Steve. I don't know if that is me or that is Steve. So I am going to uh, pretend that it is Steve. Uh, if Sam Bailey, our producer, could weigh in in the private chat, that would be appreciated. So I am going to set up. Yeah, it is Steve. Uh, so Steve, if you can uh, do whatever you can to fiddle with your connection, that would be appreciated. But sure. the next segment, uh, we're going to talk about fast food wages. And, and, and I can go a little heavy on the conversation here. Also, Seven Investing Nation, you have been super quiet. We've had a very strange flow of comments on the last few shows where they all pile in at the end. But please, feel free to say hello. Feel free to add a comment. But here's what's happening in fast food wages. Fast food wages are up by 10% in the second quarter uh, compared with a year ago. Restaurants have been raising wages because there are no workers. My 17-year-old has been working at Wendy's and they're paying him like, I don't know, like close to $11 an hour. He has no skills. He's never worked anywhere before. He's really good at it. Uh, but absolutely wasn't coming in with a lot of experience. This is the largest quarterly jump in years. Uh, for comparison, hourly limited service employees saw wages rise 4.1%. Uh, so like your target worker, your public's worker, only 4.1%.
Steve, this is good for workers, but is it good for consumers? Um, I mean, I, I don't think it's a, a terrible thing for consumers. I mean, maybe you can disagree, but uh, you know, I, I'd be willing to to pay a little bit more for my food if I knew it meant my uh, the person serving it to me was making a more livable wage. Um, but I, I, I'm not sure uh, how it actually applies, you know, on, on a broader basis, you know, are the repercussions uh, to seeing wages climb? Uh, because, you know, I've, I've definitely experienced some of the, the kind of uh, annoyances with going to, you know, trying to go to a Taco Bell and saying, sorry, we closed four hours earlier than usual because we don't have any workers. And like literally signs like that put up on the drive-through and I'm like, ah, that, yeah, that's it, kind of salty. But it's it's actually a massive problem here in Orlando. I, I, I'm in at the moment in Davenport, Florida, right on the outskirts of Kissimmee and Orlando, which is the tourism capital of the US. I mean, maybe Vegas would argue, but there's a lot of tourism here. There are nice sit-down restaurants that are just like closing Monday and Tuesday. Yeah. There are fast food places that are closing their dining room, not for COVID reasons, for we can't staff it. We're going to be drive-through and delivery only. There yeah. is a real labor shortage. And let me give you some of the numbers. Uh, the July unemployment rate for eating and drinking uh, establishments was 8.4%. That's up from 5.9% uh, just two years ago. Um Restaurants are opening, uh, full service restaurants are operating with 6.2 fewer employees in the kitchen and 2.8 fewer in the front of house. That's going to lead to bad service, which is going to make you not want to pay those higher prices. I fully agree with Steve when I say that nobody notices if their you know, meal at McDonald's went from $5.79 to $6.23. Uh, I, I absolutely think that's true. But Steve, how do we solve this problem? Because wages alone clearly aren't getting it done. Yeah. And uh, I guess that that's one of those things where uh, you're also going to see that there's there's a kind of delayed effect, you know, from increasing wages. This is going to solve it all at once. Um, you know, do you find ways, um, some of the bigger chains might find ways to uh, to be able to, to cope with having fewer people. Do you automate something? You know, do you have systems, uh, you know, kind of more bakery systems or like robotics automation? You know, I've seen those restaurants where you've got a, a robot bartender or like, you know, robots <laughs> that can cook burgers or something like that. But uh, that's something that, you know, seems like it would be prohibitive for all but the largest chains who could actually afford such um, kind of extravagant um, streamlined even, McDonald's, even McDonald's had to fight with its franchisees to put in their restaurant of the future concept. Yeah. That concept does not cost anywhere near what automating Big Mac making would cost. So yeah. I think what you're going to see is closer to what McDonald's did, where you automate as much of the order taking as you can. You right. automate things like inventory that you can do with sort of off the shelf technology. You are probably not going to move to full on automated, you know, Big Mac making. Now, can you automate the fry machine? Maybe you can, because it's a pretty, or at least parts of it, because it's yeah. pretty simple. You're seeing things like your non-Starbucks, like places that make espresso drinks, it works like a Keurig. Like you push a button that says cappuccino and, and that's what you're getting. I do think you're gonna see more of that, but Steve, I've told my robot bartender story on air. I paid big money in Vegas to go to a robot bar and the bartender over poured my gin and tonic and probably all the gin went away and it was just a big sticky tonic. And, <laughs> and our friend Matt Frankel was, was with me and he got some drink that was so sickly sweet it was undrinkable. And you know what you can't complain to? A robot. So <laughs> I, I, I'm actually really curious. Uh, in, yeah. in February, I'm going to be on a, a cruise ship with our very own Max Chatsko that has a robot bar. And I am looking forward to going to the robot bar to see if that's improved. 
Um, but Steve, isn't some of this about making restaurant jobs more tolerable? I, I, when I ran the toy store, we did not pay high wages, but I made yeah. damn sure it was a fun place to work. Do you want to take sure. a guess at, at what the average turnover rate is in the restaurant business? Uh, <laughs> uh, high to very high. Um, over yeah, 100%. I... <laughs> no. When yeah. your turnover rate is over 100%, you're endlessly training people. There's a real expense to that. So I know like, you know, like where my son is working doesn't have like automated scheduling, doesn't have the ability to, you know, to, to trade shifts or do something, you know, like your targets of the world, your Walmarts of the world are really moving into being like sort of worker friendly where it's like, okay, you're a student, uh, you know, you can only work after four o'clock. Here's how you log into available shifts. Here's how, you know, your kid's sick for the day. There's a way for you to swap shifts to do stuff. I actually think we're going to need to see a lot more investment there. And the good news is, that's not expensive to go out and license a third party app that helps you do things like, you know, working with schedules. Uh, that's going to be a pretty big improvement for the restaurant industry. The other thing I think we're not talking about uh, because it tends to be political is that there's all these people that are not working and forget why some of them aren't working. Some of the people not working are not working because of childcare, because their daycares didn't reopen. I actually do think the opening of school is going to change that. A lot of kids are, most kids are going back to school across the country and that frees up caregiver time. That, that morning shift at Wendy's can now be the mom who wasn't able to work. But Steve, this probably isn't going to solve the whole problem. No, um, I, I'm, I'm not convinced it will. And I, I, I think it's a, a multi-tiered um, problem that's going to take some creativity and, and maybe an industry-wide response uh, that's somewhat coordinated uh, to fix. And uh, it's not going to be an easy fix, but I, I guess, you know, we're outside of that and we can watch it happen, but hopefully. I, I'm really uh, excited by it because I think it's the Starbucks of the world that yeah. have worked. It's not just wages. Starbucks is not a $15 minimum wage it guaranteed. It is a lot of places, but it isn't uh, everywhere. But the college benefit, uh, the tips, the, yeah. the, the flexibility of scheduling. I, I had a friend who, who worked at Starbucks, uh, she's now at Wawa, but she, you know, she was a manager and she had a child and her husband's a contractor. So they let her work like really early mornings when her husband was still home. Like mm-hmm. you need to be that level of dynamic. And I think you're gonna see your Starbucks and your Wawa's, which are leaders, uh, and they're gonna set the tone and then your targets and Walmarts and people like that are gonna do it. And then eventually it's gonna have to trickle down, but there are gonna be some losers. There are gonna be some, some fast food chains that just can't get workers. And I've often joked like, you know, about the difference in quality between Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts workers, but it's noticeable because Starbucks has national standards because they're not franchised and Dunkin' Donuts very much depends on your franchise owner. We appreciate that a lot of you are watching. We are not getting a lot of comments, but we're gonna take a comment from Max Lucas and hopefully this opens the floodgates. Uh, In September, I will be asking for a 10% raise because of inflation. And I can be fairly certain I will get that because there are so many job openings. Uh, This just does continue to perpetuate inflation. Yup, there's going to be some price increase because of wage increases. Uh, And technically, price increases have actually wiped out the benefit of wage increases. But that's a very, very squishy number because if you didn't have to buy a car or a house, your, your, your increase has generally been better. So if you have like a locked into a lease or if you've owned a property for longer than the pandemic uh, and you got a raise, things are generally going to be good. Wages are a tough thing to talk about because we always talk about them on like a national basis. And the reality is 
$15 in Orlando, Florida is a lot better than $15 in West Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, you know, so so that's really important to think about that. Like you can live certain places. Uh, you know, I'm going to guess Montana has places that are not overly expensive to live. They may also not be all that close to jobs. So all of this is very personal. And yeah, a lot of people are going to be able to go to their boss and demand a raise, but be careful what you wish for. Because the reality yeah. is if you like your job and you go in and demand a raise and they say, well, we'll give you a 6%, you kind of have to leave. <laughs> like, like that's... That's not a great scenario. We are going to talk about your investing mistakes. Steven, I do think your internet has improved. So that is fabulous. We, of course, would like to take your questions and comments, but we have something special and new at Seven Investing today. Sam Bailey, if you would like to share that graphic, I would be happy to talk about it. Um, we can share how to download it a little bit later. Uh, it is seveninvesting.com. And we have lost that again, but we will go. So I've got from our very own Simon Erickson uh, that we have a new SFR. Uh, is it SFR Special Free Report? Is that what it stands for, Steve? Yeah. Uh, yeah so yeah. not a very clever name. And it's by our, our own Anirban Mahante, and it is on Zero Trust. That is now live on our site. If you're a member, that is free for you to access. Steve, you played with this this morning. How do you access it as a member? Uh, yeah, if you just go to uh, 7investing.com forward slash free special report, uh, or if you just go to 7investing.com uh, and you go to our research filter, um, you can just click on the, the research link at the top and uh, you'll see it right there. Um, but we have a, a special reports filter there that you can find it um, pretty easy to find. But uh, yeah, go to 7investing.com forward slash research. You'll see it right at the front as well. But uh, all of our free special and, reports. Are and if you are URL. not, if you are not a member, and not logged into our website, it will be right on the homepage. And all you have to give us is an email. Now, do we spam you with email? Do we four times a day, I'm looking at you, musician's friend, send endless email to you? We do not. Uh, you'll get some emails, you'll get some useful stuff, you have the ability to opt out, uh, but we would love to have you as a member. And the goal of these special reports, or at least one of the goals, is to just show the depth of research we do. Look, Anirban is brilliant, like he knows a lot of stuff. So if you have the chance to read something that he put his time and research into, I would highly recommend. I know I'm going to do it tomorrow afternoon. I'm, we're busy the rest of the day today, but tomorrow afternoon, I'm gonna sit down and read that free report. If you are not a member, we are getting close to the first of the month. That is when our new picks come out. For $49 a month or $399 a year. So you know the price of, what is that? Like 40 cups of coffee? Like it is not a lot. Uh, you could become a member of 7investing. And to do that, you go to seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. We're gonna seg into what we're, uh, to our, our home stretch here in a second, and that is your stock market regrets. But before we do that, uh, we're gonna take a comment from Scott Eigenberg, because I think it's a good one that Steve can share some insight on. Uh, Steve, why yeah. don't you read it? Because uh, I've been talking for too long. Yeah, Scott says, I try to work on my mental game in quotes for stocks, but it seems like the emotions of the volatility can sometimes affect me. I try not to look at the prices too often, but do you have any other advice on how to keep your emotions in check and or how to trust your research that you don't get out unnecessarily? Uh, we have a framework uh, at 7 Investing. Uh, we call it our 7 Investing Principles uh, that kind of... Um, they do. They, they frame how we think about making our stock recommendations. And I think first and foremost is to think long term, but uh, also make sure you form a comprehensive thesis for why you own what you own, because it will help you uh, when it comes to preventing making emotional decisions about your stock. You can check and see if your thesis remains intact. It's easy to determine whether 
to sell or whether to continue to hang on or to add to a position. Um, but yeah, I, I think you also hit on uh, something good is not looking at prices too often because when you've got someone, uh, you know, you, there's a lot of platforms out there where you can hop on and you can have a watch list of tickers and you can, you can watch comments stream in, you know, by the second about what this stock is doing. Oh my God, it fell by a dime. Like, come on, <laughs> like it's, this is, it's, that's not how long-term wealth is created. And, and, uh, you know, think long-term, don't check your portfolio, you know, every hour and, uh, you know, just try and buy it and keep track of, you know, significant catalysts or events or announcements as you go and just make sure your thesis remains intact after you've formed it. So I did a Twitter spaces today uh, with our friend Wolf. We've, we've all done some of these. Uh, and there were some guys on that were traders. They were technical traders. And they were not your typical day traders. They, they, they know what they're doing. And, and they basically talked about you know, all the risks involved and sort of why, why it's good for them and not necessarily. And they were very complimentary on the long-term investing approach. And they asked me, do I sort of trade my own stocks that I hold long term? Meaning, like, okay, I own something. That's Microsoft, my biggest holding. I own Microsoft. I see that it's up, you know, forty percent on on the six month period. Uh, do I sell some to lock in some profits? And I said, no, I don't, because historically, that's a mistake. Uh, if you look at 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 all the tech stocks that have been long term high flying, there's actually no reason. Now, of course, if you own, say, IBM in the 90s, there becomes a point where your thesis breaks and you no longer believe in the, in the future of IBM. Now, there are some times where you can look at stock price. So let's say you've held companies for a lot of years uh, and your kid's about to go to college or you're about to buy a house. Well, you might want to sell stocks that you have the lowest conviction in that are in your portfolio. You might want to trim some of your winners because percentage-wise, they're that's a very personal, very emotional decision because I know we've talked about this a lot. Steve kicks himself, uh, you know, for shares he sold to buy his house, and and I've pointed out many times. But you own your house, like like, and that's really important. Now, if you sell shares, sold shares of Amazon in you know 2010 to buy like a bunch of candy, like that's dumb. If you sold shares of Amazon, you know, to send your kid to college, that's reasonable, and that's really a personal decision, like. Maybe for you, the thing you're selling for is because you've always wanted a Ferrari. Like, if that's going to bring you joy, that's different than me buying a Ferrari who would just be like, I don't even know how to drive a stick. Like, so that would be really, really dumb. So we, we just disconnect. When I was on this show, everybody was talking about like the trades they're going to make today and what are you looking at this week? I don't look at things this week. Like, I'm a little more tuned into the market right now because there are some buying opportunities because of like irrational COVID. Uh, yeah. movements. And, and I don't mean that, that there's anything irrational about COVID. I mean, someone might go, oh my God, uh, we, we've slowed down a little bit more. Sell my Disney stock. And Disney goes down you know, 20%. That hasn't happened, but it could. So I'm keeping an eye on some of my favorite companies that are in the travel and entertainment space that maybe will have some moves that just make them more attractive. And I'll add to positions. Uh, you know, I, I think there are some things like that. We're going to hit the home stretch here and talk uh, stock market regrets. Ravi Shah, we will take your question uh, towards the end of the show. We will take any other questions people want to ask towards the end of the show. This is going to be sort of a quick hit segment. We've just got a whole bunch of things you shared on Twitter. And Sam, if you could share the tweet that I put out there that went, uh, went pretty viral. Uh, what's, your, what's your biggest financial risk or stock market regret? 
Mine is not buying Amazon many years ago when it first became an important part of my shopping life. Uh, and then we have a few others that sort of agreed with me on this. If we want to show them in pretty rapid fire here, Sam. Uh, mine was buying in 2000 and selling it. That's in reference to Amazon. So much Amazon. Shopped there at their opening in Germany in April 98. Thought it was freaking genius. Never bought it. I believe there is one more after that, if you want to share it, Sam. Uh, my biggest regret is buying Amazon convertibles in 2001. That is 20 years ago. Not converting them, selling the bonds, doubling my money, and missing the next 600,000 or 6 million percent. Uh, I probably could have retired on that $5,000. Now, that is not typical, but that is kind of typical. Like, if you own a good company, you should hold on to it. In my case, my stock investing structure is often looking at things that are part of my life, researching them, and then buying them. The problem is when I first became enamored with Amazon, I wasn't really an investor. I was, I was you know, much younger, and that wasn't the world I was in. And then sort of when it came time, to, you know, when I started doing this, I do own Amazon indirectly in my 401k. I have exposure to it. Um, but it always just seemed to be like too expensive. Now, in the past couple of years, when fractional shares became an option, I need to buy Amazon. I just opened a stockpile account for my son and 30% and of his earnings, every paycheck are going into that account. And it is very likely that he will buy some fractional Amazon. So look, if you've made a mistake, correct it. Uh, you know, I, I had a conversation with someone today who, who saw me on the spaces who said, oh, all those tech companies you mentioned are so expensive. And I said, yeah, you would have said that 10 years ago as well. And, yeah. you'd feel, and you'd feel really dumb about it. Steve, do you want to weigh in here? Yeah. And yeah, I, I think um, actually my, uh, one of my, my biggest regret maybe is uh, in line with what Chooch shared. Uh, if you can share that one uh, by Chooch, he says, not starting much earlier. Time is your biggest ally and I'm running short. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say I, I'm you know, running short at this point, but definitely shorter than I was. And I'd wish I'd started investing, you know, when my kids like have started investing, right. I've got an 11 year old and a 13 year old and a six year old. He's not really, he doesn't know anything yet, but <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it is those early years uh, can do a lot for you. And um, you know, not, not, you don't have to start investing when you're 11. That was when Warren Buffett bought his first stock, by the way, he was 11 years old and uh, his dad was a stockbroker back then. And, but, you know, I, even when you're uh, a teenager, you know, just a teenager, uh, you know, I, I think that's not too early to get started investing and investing should not be an intimidating thing. And it always kind of felt that way for me uh, when I was younger until I started getting more into it. Um, you know, I kind of cut my teeth as an investor uh, a few years before the 08, 09, like craziness and that crash. And uh, I got to experience that. Um, and learn a lot of lessons with not a lot to lose. So that's one silver lining, I guess. But I do wish I'd started much earlier. And, um, you know, yeah, I, I think that would, that would add a lot. As a parent, I also thought it was pretty important. Like when my son wanted to work, I made it very clear that he was going to have a bank account that, that I had access to. So I can see what he's buying and, and what he's spending. Yeah. And that every time he got paid, that 30%, and I'm going to give him a little bit of a match. I'm going to put like 5% in so he, he can feel like he's making money, even if the stocks he buys take a little bit of time, yeah. uh, but he's 17. He's going to live with me for at least, you know, probably three or four more years. If he works that whole time and he'll probably start some college and take some classes during that as well, but I don't think he's going to go to traditional college. When he starts working full time and, you know, making whatever, caught $50 an hour and clears like, I don't know, five or $600 a week, not a lot of money, 
but his expenses are zero because he lives with me. So if he puts away 50%, you know, all of a sudden he's going to be 21 and have a meaningful amount of money invested. And that could be a down payment on a house. That can be, oh my God, I, I really want to go, you know, work for the Peace Corps for a year and, and see, you know, other countries, or I want to, you know, go take a, you know, a, a bad job, but so I can go travel around the world or whatever it is, he's going to have some financial wherewithal to do that, but yeah. also understand, oh my God, I only put this much money in and it got me to here. Cause the yeah. one, my, my probably biggest regret really is that nobody told me when I was making no money, just put 2% away. Just, it was harder to automatically do that. I mean, I used to get a physical paycheck my first right. probably like 15 years working. Um, but now when I put money, like I have automatic money transferred into my brokerage account. I have automatic money uh, rounded up into my Acorns account, which is actually a Roth IRA. So it's tax beneficial. Like there's a lot of things you can do that make it not painful. And I get it. When I was making 28 grand a year, taking 2% out of that felt more painful. But oh boy, I wish I had done that because it piles yeah. up really quickly. Let's go to uh, $307 sign fool. Uh, I have no idea how you pronounce that one. I stopped investing in individual companies for a little over a decade. I missed out on some absolute monsters, including Monster. Yeah, we are big believers in investing in individual stocks, but you have to do your homework. If you're not a member of a service like 7investing, uh, we recommend 7investing. Um, you know, it is a lot of work and there are people who just investing, you know, in ETFs or, or, or mutual funds or whatever it might be, that might work for them. For us, yeah. though, Steve, that is not how we do it. No, that's uh, that's yeah. We we like to focus on individual companies, and and he mentions Monster. It's interesting. Uh, that that was actually one of the hundred baggers that uh, Chris Mayer focused on in his book, One Hundred Baggers, and and uh, yeah, that's I mean, and, and that's the 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 fun part about it is, you know, I, I've seen some of the best investors in the world say, if you're right, fifty uh, percent of the time, you know, you're doing pretty darn good. Right. And, and people don't think that way. They think, uh, you know, 50% on a test is an F, right? And like, no, um, you know, you, you can have uh, your winners will significantly outpace your losers. And only a few really big winners can make your portfolio and, uh, and, and drive your returns. So uh, it doesn't take much. And, uh, but it takes time to realize that a lot of I, people want to get into like get rich quick. Right. And they want this money fast, but it takes years uh, to get those really big winners. I'm not talking about, you know, a two bagger or a four bagger, even I'm, I'm talking about 10, 15, 20, 30 baggers. And, uh, that's, that's when it gets really fun. He mentions monster. And I also think it's important to, it's fine to use a company like monster as a data point when you're researching right. other beverage companies. But I think we saw a lot of people get behind Celsius, uh, which is a, another publicly traded energy drink company. And they're only these. You can make a case for Celsius. I don't, but 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 you can make a case for it. But your case can't be it's an energy drink, and so was Monster. Yeah. You have to look at how it's being accepted in the market. And I would argue that Celsius has done really well in like the gym and exercise world. It has not done well in the grocery store world. It flamed mm -hmm. out really quickly uh, in Publix here in Florida, and that's anecdotal. But you have to dig into what their reorders are like. What Monster was a and Red Bull. We're, we're very much like pop culture phenomenons and they're not necessarily duplicatable. We, we may not need the next monster because we have monster. I know I drink Red Bull and I did try Celsius. I don't drink a lot of any of these things anymore. Uh, yeah. And I prefer Red Bull. So I, I think there's going to be, 
you know, a lot of sort of false equivalencies when people are analyzing stocks. You have to be careful with that. Just because Tesla is a great stock doesn't mean that all electric vehicle stocks. So we all saw that. We saw a lot of that happen. I want to take a few more of your tweets here. And then we've got a couple of questions, uh, Ravi and Stock Investor. We will get to those. Uh, and feel free to add your questions. Ask us whatever you like. Uh, we, we will try our best to get to it. Um, so Paul uh, Kalakarinos, uh, and again, I apologize for reading this uh, from a little bit far away. So I may, waiting till 40 to move from residential property investments to having a blend of both. By both, I, I assume he means equities and stocks. Yeah. Um, look, I always, when I was younger, took the belief that, well, I own a house and I'm building equity in my house and that's an investment. But of course, I've, I've been through two boom periods in the real estate world, uh, one pre the 2008 crash uh, and one now where like the property I'm sitting in, where I'm doing this show is worth $60,000 more than I paid for it three months ago. It might be worth $75,000 more. Like that's where like the starting asking prices are and they're selling in a day. That is of course the equivalent of like picking a stock that you know goes up astronomically quickly, but that's not typical. So I, I am a believer that you largely should own real estate uh, because we all need a place to sleep. And in my case at the moment, I don't own my principal residence, though we are, we are looking at and probably will we'll change that soon. Uh, but I do fully own my, my secondary residence and I do consider that a good investment. But owning stocks is the best way for the average person to get rich slowly to make money over the long term. Steve, I know you agree with me, so I'll let you weigh in here as well. Yep. Um, no, I, I can just say I, I, I definitely agree. Um, the stock market is uh, undeniably um, the, the greatest wealth generating vehicle uh, we have available to us. And uh, I, I would say, you know, you, you'd have some people say, oh, you know, crypto and there's other ways to do that. But uh, um, there, there are more ways to invest now. Um, you know, then, then there were uh, more vehicles to put money to work for everyday investors. Uh, so there is that. But um, the stock market is a, a fantastic wealth generation tool. It, and it's silly not to take advantage of it. If you understand crypto and want to invest in it, more power to you. Uh, mm -hmm. Or if you're listening to our friends at Crypto EQ and, and using their expertise and making investments, I, I think that's great. But I think for the most part, and, and we talked a lot about this on the spaces <laughs> I did this morning. I believe in understanding what I own. Now, can I explain every aspect of like, you know, some of like the tech company infrastructure? No, of course not. But I generally can make a case for why I own it, what it does, what the thesis is. Like, do I understand the nuance of like the Starbucks relationship with coffee growers or, or every in and out of their Nestle deal? No, but I understand selling coffee and what retail looks like and how restaurants operate. Uh, so for me, I actually do think it is important to have that kind of touchstone and I think most people have a core competency in some areas of investing where, you know, hey, I am a customer of video games. I understand what the good video game makers are. Uh, and when, you know, Seven Investing comes out and says, hey, I like this video game stock, I can go, oh, hey, yeah, I agree. Like I buy their games every year. Like I spend a lot of money on, you know, my son buys like outfits for his characters, the skins, I think they're called. Like that is a ridiculous purchase in my opinion, <laughs> but it works. Like it, it's, it, you know, it, it is a thing. So I, I think there's all sorts of expertise here. We're going to take the last two on our list here uh, before we get to some of your questions and comments here. So Sam, if you want to go to uh, Vinaya Vakati, uh, and he says, selling Google at 165, thinking I made a killing. By the way, I got in at 90 back in 2005, right after its IPO. And the next one after this is very similar as well. Uh, Rick Zabrodsky says, selling any stock ever. Uh, over the past 30 years, I have lost 100 times more 
by taking protective profits early on as compared to all of those that stayed flat or went to zero. Yeah, we've actually seen this, that selling is almost always a bad idea. Steve, I'll let you comment and then I'll finish up a little bit here. Right. And a lot of people ask like, oh, why have you, we haven't issued a sell recommendation so far. We launched seven investing in March of 2020. So about a year and a half ago now. And, uh, uh or in people, pandemic time, 30 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right at the end of an 11 year bull market and right in the middle of a, a horrible stock market crash, start of a pandemic, good time to launch a stock picking service. Right. And we didn't plan it that way, but it turned out that way. And, um, you know, that, that's, a. Uh, it, selling, you know, if you look back at, at a lot of your decisions, um, you know, there's there's bound to be several uh, sell decisions, uh, several sells that you're going to regret later on. And uh, almost without exception, if you've done um, research on a stock and determined that it is a promising long term investment and you sell to take those protective profits it ends up coming back to bite you uh, later on. And, and that's tough. You know, people say, um, you know, you never went broke taking a profit. Um, but it's a lot harder to get rich that way as well. So, <laughs> uh, you know, that's not to say you should never take take profits. You know, sell when you need the money, and uh, you shouldn't put money in the stock market that you're going to need um, for a few years anyway. So, um, that's that's kind of um, that, that's a tricky thing is is determining when to sell. Uh, but we sell when the thesis is broken. Uh, maybe when it's acquired and we're not interested in holding shares of, uh, you know, if it's a stock and cash deal or uh, you're going to get shares of the company that's acquiring it, maybe we're not interested in, in owning those. Um, but uh, yeah, there's 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 a lot of reasons to sell and uh, and taking some profits off the table should be very seldom uh, one of those because um, I'm, I'm looking at the very long term stories of stocks that I'm recommending and I yeah, don't mind near term pullbacks or profits. There are a couple of exceptions to that. One, one is pretty unique to, to MySpace and retail. And I'll talk about that in a second. The other one is if you can't sleep at night because something you own has grown so much that, that it's 50%, 60% of your portfolio, and you would just feel better selling part of your position, go ahead and do that because you don't want your portfolio to impact your mental health. You don't want to have you know, one stock be down 10% in the day and all of a sudden like your net worth is materially impacted and you feel bad about it. Now, obviously we have days where everything's down and we have those big drops. That, that's happened a handful of times during the pandemic, uh, but that is a lot different than being tied to one company because we know you're really great companies. Uh, you know, your Chipotle's, your Microsoft's have fallen by 50%. If you have so much, the second scenario, and again, this is largely a retail scenario. If your company, everything finishes on your thesis and you go, okay, like I believed in, I don't know, Target, and they've expanded to all the countries they're going to expand to, they've opened all the stores, their, their growth is really slowed, you might look at it and go, there's a better place to put my money. I, in tech, that has almost never been true. Like, I mean, now there are companies that have lost their way, certainly. There are companies like Apple that lost their way, then found their way. There was someone uh, in the, the Twitter feed here that talked about regretting not buying Apple when, uh, when Bill Gates invested money. And I just said, well, at that point, Apple could have gone either direction. Like there is no, Apple could absolutely be IBM or be Atari. Like that, that could have happened. So it's one of those scenarios where, you know, this is very personal, but we almost never are telling you to sell because the stocks we're recommending, we believe in for the very long term. And sure, is there a point where some of these stocks, like, 
you know, might just become mature companies that are great businesses and no longer great investments. But then they tend to pay dividends and they tend to to do things that make them good investments for different reasons. Oh, and by the way, yeah. you're older. So those dividends, you know, might be more beneficial to, to your taxes and your benefits. We appreciate so many of you participating in this. That that Twitter uh, post had something like 35,000 people look at it, and like, you know, hundreds of people interact with it, which is always fun and exciting, especially when it's on a Sunday afternoon when I'm driving for three hours and I see the thing start to blow up uh, as I am driving through rainstorms. But I want to take a couple of your questions and comments here. This show has gone way longer than I expected it to go. Uh, <laughs> Ravi Shah says, a question for Dan and Steve. What's the biggest numbers of holdings in your portfolio? I'm getting close to 50. Lots of seven investing picks. Steve, I'll let you go first here. Yeah, I, I think I currently have about 40 uh, in my portfolio. And that number's actually increased quite a bit since we launched seven investing because I, I wanted to, to better diversify. I kind of had a more focused portfolio when we started. And uh, too many good ideas and uh, a lot of places to put money to work. But uh, it, that'll climb, I think, over time. Um, but, uh, you know, I know uh, some other members of the team have 80 to 90. Uh, some have fewer. Uh, so it's all a matter of personal preference. And uh, if you look at our frequently asked questions under the Y7 investing um, uh, drop down on the 7investing.com site, uh, you'll see one article on allocation. We do talk about, you know, how we think about you know, building and, and allocating a portfolio uh, in there as well. So. so I have two baskets in my portfolio. I have the stocks I have researched and own, uh, which are largely seven picks that I have made for 7investing. Uh, or picks that other people have made that I'm very, very familiar with. Um, you know, so that's one part of my portfolio, the, the part that I actively manage and think about and, and add to those positions. And then I have the other part of my portfolio, which is pretty much every Max Chatsko pick to diversify <laughs> into an area I don't cover. And I usually buy at least one, if not two or three, of the other picks because I attend are our live pitches, which you get to see as a member on video uh, on the eighth of the month. Uh, I, I read our our picks, you know, our, our write ups on our picks, so I can go. Okay, I don't know, you know, Virgin Galactic, a great a great example of a stock Steve has talked about very publicly as owning, and because of Steve's knowledge about it, I bought some shares. Now, is my stake in that significant? No, it is not. But Virgin Galactic is a stock that could absolutely be a hundred bagger or a zero. So, so owning 20, 30 companies like that where I don't do active research, uh, I, I do more than the average person because I host this show, uh, but I think that's okay. So Ravi, if you want to have one portfolio where it's like the bulk of your money and it's the ones you feel best about, and then you want to have others where you're just really intrigued by what we picked, I think that's probably going to be a winning strategy. Can't give you specific advice, but that's what I do. So for me, I don't feel any need to even remember what the ticker stands for, for some of the ones Max has picked, uh, because I know my timeline, that's five years. So in five years, I'll, I'll take Max out to dinner and we'll go look at that portfolio uh, and we'll see how it's doing. Uh, so I, I really think it's okay to take a lot of small bites at the apple, uh, as long as you're putting money into the stuff you really feel strongest about. Stock Investor says, uh, can we expect more Dan Klein's seven investing collaborations with the FinTwit Morning Brew. I assume that's the name of the show I was on this morning. Um, I had a really good time. I don't say no to almost anyone who asked me to be on something. Uh, I'll, I will be on your your 11-year-old's podcast uh, if it's a thrill for them because I, I think it's really important to be encouraging of people who are broadcasting. This was a really nice audience and a really good space. I know we've all done spaces. We do our very own market focus 
spaces uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, live at 4 o'clock with different members of the team. So I, I am a big fan of, uh, you know, of sort of doing w whatever is necessary out there. And yeah, anybody wants to have me on, I am happy to come on. Uh, Nick asks, how about that Bill Ackman guy? So I don't know Bill Ackman all that well. I will just say that I avoid doing anything based on financial celebrities. I don't care what Kathy Wood is buying. I don't care what Warren Buffett is buying. Um, by the time you know what they're doing, they've done it. And I either believe in those companies or I don't. Uh, Bill Ackman tends to be a little more reactionary and, and more of like a, a CNBC guy. I really think it's important to tune out the noise and focus on people like us. And I don't want to toot our own horns. There are other people out there who do this that are really focused on the long term. And they're not like, oh, my God, what's the market doing today? Steve. Yeah. <laughs> Bill Bill Ackman's interesting. He's the uh, he's the Pershing Square uh, capital guy. He actually just abandoned uh, that massive spec. It was like a four billion dollar spec uh, that he abandoned after being sued by shareholders. And I think he was trying to was he trying to take Tops or something uh, public? And yeah, well, he tried to take Tops public, and they lost their deal with Major League Baseball. So like, yeah, what like, exactly uh... does Tops have if it doesn't have baseball cards? <laughs> so yeah, they're uh, um, yeah. I mean, Ackman Ackman makes some interesting plays and some very public plays. Um, but I think uh, you know he also has his own interests uh, kind of at heart in, in Pershing Square uh, investors, obviously. But um, yeah, he, he's an interesting personality, and and he's made a lot of money for himself, but uh, uh, it, maybe not necessarily for other people. But it's really important to remember that as what we do at Seven Investing, we have our memberships' interests at hearts. Right. Uh, and we obviously, you know, you, you know that we're making a pick and, and we disclose whether we own that pick or whether we own any of the other picks that, that are being made that month. But our goal is to do well, the stock to do well in the long term. If you are, and I'm not saying Bill Ackman does this, but if you are any of these CNBC world celebrities, you might go on and be like, oh, I'm really huge into Twitter. Like the tw buy Twitter stock, it's great. With the idea that the stock's going to go up and they're going to sell out, they're not going to tell you when they're going to do that. And that's really, really important. If I am a money manager, there is, you know, if I, if I am buying, you know, a, a stockbroker, buying stocks for, for my clients, short-term movements can be important. They're not important for us at 7investing. That is really important for you to remember. Said that word important way too many times. Sam Bailey, let's... Uh, Let's hop up on the top rope. Let's hit our finisher. I'm not sure what our finisher would actually be. Which company do you think mistreats its customers the most? This <laughs> was uh, inspired by how often Comcast has called me to return their equipment uh, because I no longer have Comcast. I'm going to rush right to that at the same speed Comcast did with fixing every problem I've ever had with them. Uh, Comcast was slightly the winner here. Facebook came in second. A lot of people argue that the customer for Facebook is the advertiser, and the advertiser is very happy. I can see that point. Uh, Verizon came in third. I've actually had some pretty terrible customer experiences with Verizon. I would rate them right up there with, 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 with uh, Comcast. And a lot of people uh, weighed in with Wells Fargo. With Wells Fargo, it was much more about their fake account scandal. I'm actually a Wells Fargo customer and argue, would argue that their local branch customer service is great. So that if you didn't actually have a bad experience with them creating a fake account, obviously that's a terrible experience, that their actual boots on the ground experience is pretty good. Steve, do you have any thoughts on this one? Yeah, maybe in terms of like sheer volume of just ugh, customer service. And if anyone has listened to you on our show, <laughs> would probably vote for Comcast listening to that. But uh, I, I would have voted for Wells Fargo here. That fake account scandal was terrible. 
you know, making, making checking accounts to fulfill quotas. And it was like, oh my gosh, like her savings accounts. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I remember I used to have a Wells Fargo checking account when uh, I came to college and they instituted like a minimum account, like balance policy of like $1,500 or something back then. And, and I went in there and realized they'd, you know, over the last year taken out a couple hundred dollars from a, a savings account that I was like, come on, like, this is crazy. But yeah, so no, it's, uh, that was, that was not surprising to me when that came out as a former Wells Fargo customer. But, uh, I actually think it's very rare when corporate yeah. culture and local culture aren't the same. And again, I've only been a Wells Fargo customer in Florida, so I don't know if it's like a Southern Florida thing and other Wells Fargo branches are not friendly. But like everyone who works at the Wells Fargo treats you like they're an aunt or an uncle. I've actually had really good experiences. Now, that being said, corporate has done some really terrible things. Whereas at Comcast and Verizon, not treating customers well is kind of baked into how they do it. And at Facebook, yeah. I kind of agree. Like we're not the customer. Like we're actually, uh, you know, we're actually the product. So, so that can be a little bit tricky. We're not going to solve this all in one show. Uh, so we'll be back Wednesday. How do you get in touch with us? If you'd like to get in touch with us, that is info at seveninvesting.com. That is the number seven investing. But in this case, if you write out the word, it would also get to us. If you follow us on Twitter, that is at seven investing the number. If you type the word, it will not work. Uh, we love to interact with you on Twitter. Uh, sh if you're a member, share your referral codes and tag us. If you have a question you'd like answered on this show, uh, please uh, you know, tag us. We will try to get to it. If you have a topic you want us to talk about, probably don't ask us you know, to research some obscure stock and, and do a segment on it. But if you're really curious about something, we are always happy to do it. Um, uh, we will close out with this last comment from our friend Max Lucas, uh, and then we will call it a day. Uh, when I started working in banking, I learned that a lot of practice Wells Fargo did were unfortunately just typical of most banks. Uh, that's how the employees hit lofty growth targets. Yeah, Max works in that industry, so we are not going to fault an industry as a whole, but I think it's fair to say with some of the digital disruption that's happened in banking, there are obviously some monopolistic old school practices uh, that are not super customer friendly that we're seeing broken. Uh, and we've seen this, you know, Steve and I have probably talked about 15 different, you know, apps and and, and stocks and companies that do that. You know, I, I've made Zelle and Venmo and PayPal payments all, you know, and those are things, I guess Zelle is tied to the bank, but they're, they're all sort of things that didn't exist that were created by the inefficiencies of the banking market. We've gone almost an hour. We're going to let you go home. We will be back Wednesday uh, at at uh, noon live Eastern. We'll be back tomorrow with Spaces uh, at four o'clock on Twitter. Until then, Sam Bailey behind the glass. Thank you. Steve Simonton. I am Dan Klein. We will see you Wednesday. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.